Good evening and welcome to the Noahide Nations class on Proverbs. It is Sunday, January 23rd, 2011. My name is Doug Taylor. Glad to have you with us. And we are starting tonight with Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 10. And the verse reads, Chastisement frightens an understanding person more than smiting a fool a hundred times. Interesting construction. Chastisement frightens an understanding person more than smiting a fool a hundred times. So, what kinds of questions could we ask around that verse? Well, we might start by asking, what's chastisement? And what does it mean to frighten someone? And then, what is an understanding person here? And what's it mean to smite a fool? And perhaps most importantly, why is this verse true, and what can we learn from it? So let's start with some definitions. Chastisement could also be termed rebuke. It's sharp disapproval or criticism for actions that you either took or that you failed to take. Uh, and that disapproval or that criticism could be direct from somebody else, like a teacher or a parent or a boss, or it could be in the form of negative consequences. You did something, you got some negative consequences, and those consequences were a rebuke to you. They clearly indicated that you either did something that you shouldn't have done, or there was something you should have done that you failed to do. Now, What's an understanding person? Again, the verse reads, chastisement frightens an understanding person more than smiting a fool a hundred times. Rabbeinu Yonah talks about two characteristics of an understanding person. First, the understanding person wants to understand the chastisement or the reproof that he's been given. In other words, he's interested to know what he can learn from this. Okay, Things didn't go the way I'd hoped, and I just got yelled at, or I just got rebuked or chastised somehow. Now, rather than brood over it, the understanding person asks, what can I learn out of this? What caused me to make this mistake? How can I avoid this again? The understanding person wants to know. And the second characteristic that the Rabbeinu Yonah discusses is that the understanding person must have the heart to accept the reproof and take action on it. Uh, it. It takes a certain mindset to do this. You have to have a certain willingness to put aside your own ego in order to hear and accept uh, reproof or chastisement from somebody else. And then you have to have a desire to act on that learning. It's not enough just to hear it. You have to take action on the basis of that. And sometimes this is not so simple. I mean, our ego wants to defend. We want to say that someone or something, or maybe it's everyone or everything else, is wrong and that we're right. But the understanding person is willing to bypass his ego and look at the situation itself and learn from it and then take that learning and actually act on it. Now the word frighten, in my view, is referring to the person's willingness to see and act on the basis of the ultimate consequences of the situation. 
So when an understanding person realizes that his actions have produced a negative result, he is, so to speak, frightened into hearing the correction. In other words, he desires to hear it, and he's willing to take action on that new knowledge. Now, why does chastisement frighten an understanding person more than smiting a fool a hundred times? So, I'll suggest like this. A fool is operating on the basis of his desires. So, it doesn't matter how many times you hit him, he's not going to sit down and analyze his actions and change them because he's more interested in his desires. I mean, that's his thing in life. It's just, I want my desire. I want what I want, and I, I want it now, and, you know, I'm not interested in looking at things rationally or analyzing a situation or looking at consequences. I just want the result that I want. So... For the person of understanding, a single word of correction can have more impact than a hundred whacks to the fool because that single word of correction will cause him to stop, analyze the situation, look at his actions, and change them. The fool will just keep stepping up to the plate and getting hit and stepping up to the plate and getting hit because he never stops to think through that, oh, maybe there's a better idea or a better way to go about doing this. Or, you know, maybe that particular spot on my forehead is starting to get sore from getting whacked. Uh, they'll just keep going at it because they're operating from a base of foolishness. So the verse seems to be suggesting to us the importance of being open to correction from other people and recognizing also when we're uh, in the position of maybe having to be the ones giving the correction that it may be impossible to get through to certain people. Okay, let me pause. Any questions on that? Okay, Jim, you've said the fool does not internalize the pain of the blows, and while the pain is there, he may change his behavior for the moment, but once the pain is forgotten, he continues his behavior. Um, I would even go a little further than that and say, yes, he does not internalize the pain of the blows, and so he may not change his behavior at all. Um, uh, you know, it depends on the situation. I mean, if he's, you know, getting uh, immediate feedback from uh, pressing, uh, you know, a button that shocks him to get through a door and the button shocks him again and the button shocks him again, he would have to be incredibly foolish to just keep standing there and, and getting shocked. But when he gets punishment, he, uh, which generally comes, the smiting, the rebuke, generally comes a little after the behavior and sometimes, you know, quite a bit after the behavior. You know, he may feel the pain, but he doesn't make the connection enough with the pain to change the behavior in the future. Um, so, a, um, you know, certain people who are addicted to certain substances uh, may end up in that kind of situation where they you know, partake of the substance, they go out and do something that is really painful and uncomfortable, uh, and they wake up and, uh, you know, uh, 
realize they have consequences, and yet they'll continue to repeat that pattern over and over and over again. Um, so, Jim, am I answering your question? Okay, good. Thanks. Any other questions on this verse? Okay. Let's move on then to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 11. This one reads, The rebel seeks only evil, and a cruel emissary will be sent against him. The rebel seeks only evil, and a cruel emissary will be sent against him. What do you think about questions there? Okay, Jim, yeah, only? The rebel seeks only evil? Why the word only there? And who's the emissary uh, who is sent? And where does the emissary come from? Who sent the emissary? Emissaries are usually sent by someone else. Linda, yes, what's a rebel? Okay, good. Okay, I might uh, add, why did King Solomon say a cruel emissary will be sent against him? So, according to Rashi, a rebel is someone who consistently refuses to follow orders. Somebody who consistently refuses to follow orders. Now, we could quickly ask, well, whose orders? And presumably, this could apply in any situation. Uh, could be the government, could be where you work, could be the military. Uh, you know, wherever we are, there is usually some structure or hierarchy uh, of power uh, that involves us. Um, and a person who refuses to do what he is ordered to do is considered rebellious. Now, if we take generalized situations, here's the question. What is the practical outcome for a rebel in almost any situation. If you think about people in, in your experience, or just think about it conceptually, if a person is a rebel, a person who consistently refuses to follow orders, what's the practical outcome for them? Ah, Jim, I love it. They tend to get more dates in high school. I cannot argue with that point. <laughs> Terry and Lori, evil gets measure for measure. It shows no mercy, receives no mercy. Okay, so there's some kind of consequence uh, that happens there. And Terry, you've commented uh, they get alienated or they get ostracized. Okay, good. Yeah, in some circumstances, the and let's take the military. Okay, a rebel is dealt with pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, the, you know... Generally speaking, it's my understanding, the military doesn't put up with that sort of thing very long. Uh, in other circumstances, a rebel may get away with rebelling for a while, but ultimately, people get tired of the rebel because they disrupt the order of things. Um, and, and Jim, yes, they inspire authority to clamp down on them. Uh, and Mona, yes, they're the center of attention for a time because they are creating a disruption of the order of things, whether it's the order of a business, 
whether it's the order of society, order of the high school, whatever, you know, uh, the person that rebels against everything, and particularly if they do so in a very uh, loud and ostentatious manner, uh, they get attention for a while. But uh, that only carries for a while, and I'm not suggesting uh, that uh, we should always defend the status quo, but it's very difficult, if not impossible, to run a business or a home or the military or a society without some kind of order. Otherwise, you end up with chaos. And once that happens, uh, the society starts to break down and, and you, you haven't got a civilization anymore. So sooner or later, the rebel has to be dealt with by whoever has the power to do so. And when that time comes, after all that the rebel has done, they are not likely to send a peace negotiator, okay? Likely they're going to send an emissary, and an emissary is a person who's sent on a mission by another, uh, either another person or another party, often diplomatic in nature. The emissary's not going to be nice about the whole business because the rebel has stirred up enough trouble, enough disruption, uh, enough whatever, that there's not going to be probably a huge amount of empathy there. So he will be cruel, the, the emissary, will be cruel in quickly putting an end to the rebel's activities. People are tired of this guy and they want him stopped, period. So it's not going to be a very gentle, uh, nice kind of arrangement. So what do we learn from this? In my view, this is another example of how consequences work in the real world. A person who constantly refuses to follow orders is eventually going to suffer some very unpleasant negative consequences. Now again, that does not suggest that we should all be blind order followers uh, or you know, overlook injustices or anything like that. But when you push back on everything, I mean, it's one thing to say, hey, in this situation, I think the society is acting unjust unjustly, and I'm going to take uh, the steps that I can within the context of that society to uh, correct that injustice. That's one thing, okay? That, wouldn't, that kind of person we would not necessarily call a rebel. But when you're, when you're pushing back against everything, you set yourself up for an immediate or an eventual backlash from the group within which you operate, whether it's the business or the family or the military or the society or, or whatever it might be. If one family member is constantly stirring up trouble, constantly pushing back on everything with regard to that family, pretty soon the other family members are going to get tired of it. Uh, and the, the rebel is going to lose all credibility, and they're just going to figure out, you know, how do we deal with this troublemaker and get him out of our hair? So here comes the cruel emissary, and bingo, you have some very uncomfortable negative consequences. Okay, any questions or comments about that? Okay, good, thanks. So let's go on to a little bit of zoology. 
Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 12 says, It's better to meet a bear that has had its cubs die than to meet with a fool at the time of his foolishness. It's better to meet a bear that has had its cubs die than to meet with a fool at the time of his foolishness. Okay? I invite questions. In my view, there is one overwhelming question staring at us in the face on this verse. Anybody have a thought? Okay, Mona, good, thank you. Why a bear? And, and just to broaden that question, why is this whole thing true in the first place? I mean, King Solomon has, has made a statement here. He's saying, you know, it's better to this than this. Why? Why is this true? And yes, Mona, what do they have in common? I mean, a bear, a cub's diet, a fool is foolishness. What kind of a comparison is that? Um, yeah, Jim, we don't often get a good laugh out of scripture, but this is this is kind of funny, you know. Better to meet a bear that has had its cubs die than meet with a fool at the time of his foolishness. So, let's see if we can dissect this and figure out what King Solomon is alluding to. So, what do you suppose is going to happen when you meet a bear that has had its cubs die? Hopefully nobody's ever had to go through that. But based on what you know and have read about bears, what will happen to you if you wander in and meet a bear that has just had its cubs die? <laughs> yes, Jim. Your day will turn very bad. It will not be a happy day. Uh, and Linda, yeah, you live in an area where that's really possible. Mona, thank you. You will get ripped apart. Why will you get ripped apart? Why is the bear going to rip you apart? You didn't have anything to do with the cubs. Thank you, Jim. Bears just are not so rational. And Linda, yeah, you just don't make a mama bear mad. It doesn't know that you didn't have anything to do with the cubs dying. It's just mad. And it is going to attack the first thing that happens to be around. And if it's you, oh my, is it not going to be, as you say, Jim, a good day. You will become the object of all the fury that is pent up inside that bear because of the loss of its cubs. It is a virtual guarantee that it will not be a fun experience. Now, note that the bear is doing this because I happen to be around. It has nothing to do with me personally. And the bear will not remember who I am. Okay? The bear is only angry with me because I happen to be in sight. Okay? Let's hold that thought and look at the second half. Yes, Terry and Lori, I'm in the wrong place at the wrong time. Okay? Now, what happens when you meet a fool at the time of his foolishness? 
Rabbi Moskowitz has suggested two interpretations of foolishness uh, in the situation, and then I'd like to offer a third possibility. Rabbi Moskowitz suggested like this. If the fool is angry, and he's angry at me, then he won't forget it, and he will try to hurt me. The fool has a memory. In this case, the bear doesn't with regard to me, but the fool does. And that memory is of me, that I did something that made him angry. Okay, the bear, remember, is only angry when I'm in sight. But the fool is going to remember, if he's angry, that I did something. And so I've now set myself up in a position where I have somebody that I have to watch my back about. Because the fool may try to turn around and get back at me. Okay, that's the first interpretation of foolishness. If the fool is angry and he's angry at me. Second interpretation. If the foolishness means any type of foolishness, okay? You meet up with a fool at the time of his foolishness, who knows what he's doing, but it's foolish. Then you can't predict what the fool will do. Remember, the fool does not operate in a rational way. You can reasonably predict sometimes what a rational person will do in a certain set of circumstances, or at least maybe have a general you know, idea that, okay, he'll probably react this way, he'll probably do that. I mean, he's a rational guy. He's not going to, you know, pull out a machete and attack me, uh, whatever it is. But the fool, he is unpredictable, okay? Even the bear, you can predict. I mean, you know the bear is going to try to run at you and chew you up. But with a fool, you can't predict that. And that's what makes the fool even more dangerous because he is unpredictable. So you're dealing with an entity, a person, a human being around you who could do anything. He could, you know, laugh. He could go berserk. He could turn on you and attack you and just start beating you up. Who knows? So you're in a, a, an even more unpredictable situation than you are with the bear that just had its cubs die. And I'll offer then a third possibility. When I'm around the bear and the bear is angry, I don't get pulled into the bear's anger, okay? I, I mean, I know the bear's upset and I may feel bad. Oh, gee, you know, the cubs die, that's a shame. But the bear's mad. I'm not gonna get mad because the bear's mad, okay? I just wanna get out of the situation alive. But if the fool is just being foolish, then there is a chance that I could get pulled into the fool's foolishness, which would be a harm to me. Let's say he's going to some really wild and crazy party, you know, and he's dressed up in a crazy outfit and, I don't know, doing something that's really, however you define foolishness, he's doing something foolish. And he says, hey, come on, we're going to go have a good time. Why don't you come along? You know, you haven't seen so-and-so for a long time. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. And whatever it is, there's a possibility that you could get pulled into that foolishness. That's not going to happen with the bear, but it could happen with the fool. Okay. And Terry and Lori, yes, 
you are only in sight for a short time with the bear as well. Because uh, if you're in sight for much longer, you're probably going to be lunch or uh, you're going to disappear and, and get out. Uh, but with the fool, I could get pulled into that foolishness, which would be a potential harm to me. So the verse seems to be teaching about the dangers of being around a fool at the time of his foolishness. And virtually any way you look at it, at what that foolishness means, it's potentially a negative thing for me. And so I should ideally look to avoid that, which also gets importantly to the issue of who do I hang around with? Who do I spend time with? Uh, because that can potentially uh, have an influence on me. Okay. Any questions there? Okay, let's go on then to Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 13. And this verse reads, He who repays with evil in place of good, evil will not be removed from his house. He who repays, e he who repays with evil in place of good, Evil will not be removed from his house. So what do you think? Questions? He who repays with evil in place of good, evil will not be removed from his house. Okay, and uh, thirst for knowledge, and I don't know how else to um, refer to you. If you want to give me a name, fine. Otherwise, I'll go with what you have. Yeah, it's the opposite of the golden rule. It's an interesting, uh, interesting way to look at it. Good, good observation. Terry and Lori, why not from his house? Uh, yeah, why won't? Why will evil not be removed from his house? Uh, and Mona, you're asking why are they repaying evil? Yeah, he who repays with evil in place of good. Why would somebody do that? Um, Jim, yes, what, what does that second half mean altogether? Uh, doesn't seem to be uh, necessarily true. Ah, Rex, okay, good evening and welcome to the class. Glad to have you here. So a person could repay good with evil because he can't stand it that you did something nice for him and he resents it. And Rabbi Moskowitz suggested like this, um, and and uh, Rex, and for those, uh, uh, Antonio, I'm not sure if, um, uh, if you've heard me mention this, uh, virtually all of the teaching that I've had uh, in the book of Proverbs came uh, through years spent with Rabbi Morton Moskowitz uh, of Seattle, uh, just a, a brilliant scholar and has spent uh, his life in the book of, or his, uh, I think his rabbinic life focused on the book of Proverbs so much if not uh, almost all of what I'm sharing with you is uh, based on what I've learned from him and then ideas that uh, I may have developed as a result of principles that I learned from him. So I want to uh, you know, give uh, the appropriate credit where it's due there. On this verse, Rabbi Moskowitz suggested like this. He said, when you do someone a favor and they don't repay you, there could be two things going on. First, 
Sometimes a person can't tolerate the responsibility of owing someone else. In other words, they can't stand being in someone else's debt. It bothers them so much that they won't repay you because they don't want to acknowledge the debt. Uh, and not acknowledging or repaying a debt would be a form of repaying evil in place of good. In other words, the sheer fact of not repaying the good that you did them uh, would be a form of evil. So they just they can't tolerate the responsibility of owing something to you. So that's one possibility. Second possibility uh, that Rabbi Moskowitz suggested is that a person can't tolerate the idea that he needed somebody. So in other words, it, it just like rankles on him that he's not able to function completely independently. This could be, uh, could be because he has a fantasy sense of himself uh, as not needing anybody else. You know, the completely independent guy. I'm my own man. I don't need anyone else. Uh, if you really stop to think about that, that's... Uh, very difficult, if not almost impossible, to pull off uh, in society. We all depend on each other for, you know, for different things. To truly go out and exist all on your own with nothing else, no tools made by anybody else, no clothing made by anybody else, no seeds gotten from anybody else, just wander out in the wilderness and survive and do it all on your own, very, very difficult. But some people... Uh, you know, may have that fantasy. So they can't stand to admit that they need someone else and to repay back the good that someone else did for them is an admission to themselves that they aren't really completely independent. And because they just can't stand that idea, they, they, they can't accept it, then uh, they would uh, uh, they would not you know, pay back the good that was done to them. Now, a uh, question was raised, how is it that evil will not be removed from his house? So we have a person in the first half of the verse who is repaying with evil in place of good. In other words, he should have done something nice for somebody, but he does something evil. He, maybe it's, it's directly evil, or maybe he just doesn't repay the good, which is uh, could be considered a form of evil in itself. So I'll suggest that a person who does evil to others in a, it just at all is going to get consequences from that. And we've discussed that on previous occasions. If you live an evil life uh, and you are constantly seeking your own desires. So you're not living in the world of reality. You're not thinking about consequences of your actions. You're not thinking about the impact that your actions have on the greater community. You are going to make mistakes because you're not living in accordance with reality. And sooner or later, reality is going to smack you in the face. And so a person who does evil to others is going to get payback in one form or another, eventually from someone. But a person who does evil in response to good, well, that's an even worse case. He's going to be in a, in a worse position because people will resent him even more because of that. Um, so he will 
ultimately get negative consequences from his behavior through the anger and the resentment that the community will have against him, the people that he's done evil against. And so evil will not be removed from his house. In other words, the guy's not going to live a really you know, nice, smooth, peaceful life. Uh, he's going to have problems. His, his house, if you will, his life uh, is, is going to have conflicts in it, going to have difficulties. He's going to have enemies. Uh, and that's eventually going to come back to haunt him uh, in one form or another. And if he does enough of it, it could come back to uh, ultimately end his life because he could make some mistakes that uh, are either fatal or lead to somebody being angry and bothered about him enough that they take out fatal consequences on him. So it's, it's bad enough to be doing evil, but to be doing evil when you should be doing someone good, that makes those consequences even worse. So evil will not ultimately be, re be removed from his house. Okay, questions there. Okay, then in that case, I would like to slightly digress and talk about a subject that has come up in a number of ways for me over the past several months. And I thought it important enough to go back in all my notes of classes uh, and pull out some ideas with regard to it to share with you uh, that are based on Mishlei. And that is the whole subject of authority. Uh, we live in a society where uh, there are authority figures. We are expected to sometimes obey authority. Uh, and that becomes a big part of our lives growing up. There are various authorities. We have our parents and then there are teachers. And then there are, I don't know, uh, police people and government authorities and uh, religious authorities and this authority and that authority. Uh, and I want to suggest that authority can be a, uh, a dangerous thing in terms of our learning. Uh, and here's why. Uh, according to Rabbi Moskowitz, once you make a decision based on authority, your conscience starts coming into play. And one of the purposes of the book of Proverbs is to take you away from the fear of authority and move you to the fear of consequences. There is a big difference between those. When I fear an authority, then it's like, well, if so-and-so says I should do this, then that's what I do because so-and-so said so. I'll suggest that's a dangerous place to be. Uh, because the real approach in Torah and in Mishlei is to dig through an idea deep enough to understand it clearly enough so that all the questions are answered around it. And what I'm doing then is operating on the basis of seeing the idea and the consequences clearly, not because so-and-so said that I should do that. Wicked people have a fear of authority. The righteous people have a fear of consequences. And so we need to change our value system from an authority value system to a reality value system, to a fear of consequences. Now the conscience is really closely 
connected to all this. The nature of the conscience is that there's a certain authority figure in your emotions. And this authority figure stops you from doing things. And this authority figure also becomes, uh, you know, a god to us. So we have to have a means of getting out of a conscience-oriented value system to a more logical value system where we can clearly see the consequences. You know, for those who remember the statement, well, let your conscience be your guide, I'll remind us all that that statement was made by Jiminy Cricket in the Walt Disney movie Pinocchio. Not necessarily a, an authoritative uh, or a source that we would want to base our lives on. So we have in our learning, we have the book of Proverbs. And that's the one to explore first that we're doing in this class because that teaches us a rational system of life. And then the book of Psalms gives us a system uh, of learning about uh, a relationship to God. So you, you need to start with Proverbs and see consequences so that when you come to, say, looking at the book of Psalms, you can do it rationally. You have to see the practical life of Proverbs and do things within God's framework. We've talked before. There's the laws of nature um, and, uh, and God's personal providence, systems that God set up, and we have to learn to operate within those. Rex, you're absolutely right. The church is an authority figure. And there are some people who will say, well, I don't do this because my church doesn't allow me. Okay, uh, that is not the Torah approach, because basically what's happening in a situation like that is a person is giving away their power to someone else and saying, well, those guys up there told me I can't do this or I can't do that or I can't do the other thing. Uh, and therefore, that's how I have to live my life. That's not the Torah approach. Uh, from a uh, from a, uh, a philosophical perspective, uh, halacha, which is Torah law, okay, given by God, we have to follow Torah law, okay. But everything beyond Torah law, and for those of us who are, you know, Noahides, non-Jews, I mean, we have seven basic Noahide laws or seven categories of laws, uh, and there's you know certainly a a good amount of study to be done in those. Uh, but everything outside of those is philosophical in nature. And so I have to understand the philosophy, uh, not just go on the basis of what, you know, so-and-so said so. So I need to see that practical life in Mishle and work within God's practical framework. Otherwise, I can have a situation where the idolatry that's in us sneaks into the Psalms when we start studying that, and we end up with an authoritative or idolatrous view of life. The conscience uses an authority that is all-powerful. It's like an all-powerful being. Uh, but, you know, it because it's generated by the emotions, it could have physical qualities, and so it has to attach to the physical, you know, something that can it can observe with the five senses, and that becomes very superficial. So when the conscience thinks of a powerful God that can control you, then it becomes sort of like a Superman. Uh, 
But that's not that's not God, the source of all reality. That's not the 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 God of the Torah. So we have to find God through reality, and we have to find God's systems through reality. We do that by studying God's systems. That's why the work that we do in this study of Proverbs is all based on, well, what's practical in this world today? How does this verse apply now? Uh, it's not some, there's no, you know, mystical, eeny beeny, chilly beeny kind of thing in this. Uh, it's okay. Do I see that happening in the real world? If not, why not? If so, how does that work? And what can I learn from that so that tomorrow when I go to work or the next day or when I have to interact with the people down the street, I have practical knowledge that I can work with. And so we learn to make distinctions between one thing and another. And we do this through the training of the mind. And it's important that we rely on our own mind to do this. We should not rely on authorities without thought. Okay. Um, now, this all comes, also comes into play with, with principles. Uh, we were having a discussion uh, a while back about peace in the home. Um, and Rabbi Moskowitz commented that you can't live by principles. You take a principle, okay, then you try to apply the principle. And if you keep doing that constantly, it'll drive you crazy. Rather, there's a certain part of your personality that changes through wisdom. And as you go over the ideas of peace in the home, you learn more. But you shouldn't try to live by the principle because what it becomes is like an authority standing over you. Okay, You should just live your life. And you'll grow as you study the area of whatever it is, if it's peace in the home or whatever. But you have to live your life in the meantime. And as you go over and over the ideas, the ideas start to become a part of you. Okay, now, um, in the course of, of looking at this, we also got into the subject of what is the religious emotion. There's an emotion. We call it the religious emotion. When you start out in life, you're not aware of anything outside of, of yourself. You're a little baby. Everything is totally focused on you. And you're very, hopefully, you're, you, know, you feel totally content. You're empowered. You know, life's good. Um, and then at some point, you become aware that there's something outside of yourself, a couple of big giants who have control over you. And as you grow up, you start seeing reality and realizing um, that those giants don't necessarily have control over reality. Uh, and you'd really like to get back to that uh, first three or four months where things were all nice and good. Um, and that, you know, the only way back is through these giants. So uh, when the person feels insecure, they picture one or both of these giants, giants being the parents. Uh, and then eventually, and that, that authority, uh, those giants become sort of your, your all-powerful God. And at some point, you grow up and recognize that your parents are just humans too. And so you take the concept of the parents which was, you know, as a protector because I'm insecure. And that idea becomes God, okay? We just sort of can easily take our parents and project them out, and that becomes God based on an image that I picked up as a child. That is not 
the the source of all reality that can easily be just my image as god is a big version of my parents uh, rabbi moskowitz pointed out that a lot of people study god without psychology and that that is a big mistake that's why we have to study proverbs first because we have to become aware of the emotions that are operating in us because the, those emotions are clouding our view of reality. And to do that, we have to be really, really honest with ourselves. Uh, and it's sometimes very difficult to do that because, you know, the emotions want to sneak in there uh, and, you know, uh, cloud that reality and not allow us to see it. He held, and it's a very interesting point to consider, that it is impossible to be angry at the real God. I mean, God is just the source of all reality. So when I get angry with God, what I'm really angry with is my infantile view of God. And that's idolatry. Because I have this view of God that is based on something physical or some kind of Superman, Santa Claus kind of dad or whatever that's going to save me from everything. Uh, and that that's just my projection. So, Insofar as law is concerned, we have to follow that because God gave that and that's the law. But insofar as philosophy is concerned, you have to follow your mind, not authority. And here is a key point. To gain in learning, you cannot trust anybody. You have to see it in your own mind. And by trust, I don't mean that you shouldn't, you know, have some trust in other people, but in terms of getting ideas, you can't accept them because somebody else said so. You have to get it yourself. You have to see it in your own mind. It must become where you see the idea clearly and you're not accepting it from someone else. Um, and, and with regard to changing who you are, okay, you can't accept someone else's authority. The goal here is to be an independent thinker. Okay, and it's this isn't about changing the facts. It may be about seeing facts that you're hiding from yourself. So yeah, you may go to an authority. I mean, we go to rabbis and we go to doctors and and other people. Um, but in in going to an authority in this area, I don't accept the idea just because they said so. I have to see it with my own mind that it's true. Okay. You go to an authority to get information that you don't have, and then you need to see it with your own mind so that it becomes a reality to you. Okay, any questions on this point? A lot of ideas there about authority, but just a very important one that we need to see things with our own mind, and that is the Torah process. You can't force it. You can't pretend you're there when you're not. You have to be realistic with where you are, and you just keep going over and over the ideas until you've answered every question around them. And if you haven't, if you have a question, you have to be honest with yourself and say, you know what? I know that's what they say, but I don't understand it yet. And I'll just have to keep looking at it and keep asking questions about it. Uh, until I do understand, rather than force yourself to pretend that you understand something uh, if you don't. 
the term I don't know is, can be a very high level uh, statement uh, to recognize what you don't know and not be willing to jump to an understanding uh, when you really don't see it clearly. Okay, let me pause for questions. So in that case, we'll stop for the evening. And thank you all again for coming. Uh, hope you can join us next time.